Springtime is wonderful. Easter is going to be upon us in only three weeks. Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for that wonderful day coming up. And Lord, that today we would praise you and be able to worship you through looking at your word. And we're going to talk about grace today, Lord. Thank you for your grace, for your unmerited favor that you give each one of us in this room. And Lord, we'd also ask that you'd give us witnessing opportunities among the people that we meet in the upcoming week, that we might be able to share your gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus. You are a wonderful God. Father, thank you for your son. Jesus, thank you for your Holy Spirit being with us. Guide my tongue when I speak today, that it would only bring glory to you and to your kingdom, and that you would open the minds and the hearts of everybody in this room to your word which is the power of God unto salvation. We love you, God. Amen. As Jacob was reading, we're going to be looking at the topic today of God's glorious grace. And if we look at the top of page two, we're going to be looking at three points, the scope of God's grace. And then the second point will be the manifestation of God's grace. And then the final point will be the authority of God's grace. Grace is wonderful. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. God completed all of the work necessary for our salvation on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. He offers us his salvation as a free gift. The way we receive that free gift is through faith. That Jesus is God, that he did die for our sins, and that the power of his blood, the atonement, there's enough power there to wash away all of the transgressions each one of us has done. We do that through faith. And how do we receive that faith? Ephesians 2a tells us, for by, for by God's grace. We receive many, many things in our lifetime through God's grace. Our health, the families we were born into, the food we eat, the air we breathe, all of these are through God's common grace. But he has specific graces that are unto salvation. Each one of us has this grace that appears to us during our lifetime. And we'll explore a little bit of that today. But God's grace is wonderful. It's beautiful. We don't deserve it. We deserve hellfire. And yet God offers us redemption and eternal life in heaven. Okay, the scope of God's grace. First verse here is Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And this verse teaches us that none of us at the judgment seat will have an excuse because God's grace that brings this salvation, that delivers this message to us, has appeared to everybody who's ever lived, from Adam and Eve all the way through the people that are living in 2017 and for all the people who will be born in future generations should the Lord not come back. That grace will appear to all those people who have lived and will live. Psalms 97, 6 and 7 say, The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods, little g gods. 
And these verses are teaching us that the very heavens declare God's righteousness. The, the heavens declare his glory. And it says all the people see his glory. When we walk outside, we can see springtime is in the air. The flowers are blooming. The leaves are popping out in the trees. We see his glory. And yet people deny the deity of God and his creation. And it says, confounded be all they that serve engraven images. Confounded means your mind is clouded. You're believing a lie. You're believing the delusion of Satan. And people that deny Jesus, the Bible says their minds are confounded. Romans 1.19 even goes further and says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God is saying here, what can be known of God is manifest in them. It's in their being. It's in their intellect. It's in their mind. It's in their very core of their soul. The things that can be known of God are manifest in all people, for God has showed it unto them. And if God shows us something, it's done. Whatever God's word says God will do or has done, he cannot lie. He cannot break a promise. So this has been shown unto all men. Romans 1.20 takes this thought even further about the people who are worshiping graven images. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. This goes back to what Jacob just said. He said, how can the deaf hear? How can the, the dumb speak? Here we're seeing, how can somebody clearly see something that's invisible? When God says it, it becomes possible. God is a spirit, and he talks to us through his spirit. And even the people who are not born again, who are still dead spiritually speaking, God is still speaking to them. And that's why it says the invisible things of God from the creation of the world that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. All the people, the generations who have been born from Adam and Eve all the way through time. The invisible things of God from the creation world are clearly seen. And it says being understood by the things that are made. So there's another point that people will not have an excuse. They will say, no, I didn't understand God. God's going to say, no, no. My word says you, you saw the invisible things and it was clearly understood. Even his eternal power and Godhead. The Godhead being the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his eternal power. His, God's power didn't have a starting point. It's eternal. It never had a starting point. It's been forever. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And that one man by which sin entered into the world was Adam. It says, so death passed upon all of us. And each one of us in this room, we know each day we're getting closer to meeting the Lord. We know our bodies are failing us. This morning, I have a sore back. It doesn't want to work well in the morning. It's telling me my day of judgment is approaching. I have constant reminders, as I'm sure all of you in this room do. Romans 5, 18, further down in this, in this chapter, it says, therefore, by... The offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. So this verse is further explaining that the offense of the one being Adam, judgment came upon all of us because we're all Adam's children. All of us can take our lineage all the way back through all of the saints mentioned in the Bible all the way back to Adam and Eve. They are the, the parents of all of us in this room. Many, many, many generations ago, 6,000 years ago, takes us back to Adam and Eve. But this verse also says, even so by the righteousness of one, righteousness being perfection, a sinless nature, a perfect state, that has to be God. Because nobody else is righteous. And it says by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus. The free gift there's no strings attached to this free gift. There's no works-based involved. It's a free gift. Came upon all men. Do you see the consistency of this theme? Grace of God comes to all men. And it says, unto justification 
of life. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, you are justified under the blood. And that doctrine of justification, it's easy to remember because it's just as if you never sinned. Justification, just as if you never sinned. If you're under the blood, you're justified in God. And it's just as if you never sinned, judgment seat of Christ. Let's look at Titus 2.12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. So God's grace has a component that teaches us. There are many things that we do that we learn in life. When you think back all the way to your childhood, some of the first memories are maybe learning how to tie your shoes or picking up your toys or even learning how to use utensils when you, when you eat a meal. Those are all things we learn as we're growing up. As we mature as, as a Christian, we follow a similar pattern. When we're born again, we're a babe in Christ. We're still taking just milk. But as we mature as Christians, we take the meat of the word. And God is saying here, by his grace, he's teaching us. And what are the things that God teaches us? This verse says, we need to know, learn how to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. All the sins of the world fall into the lust of the eyes and lusts of the flesh and the pride of life. And God's word says, through his grace, we can learn how to deny all of the lusts that the sins fall into. And it says we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There's a world to come. When we pass through the portal of death into eternity, that's the world that will come. But in this present time, God's word teaches us how to live without the sin. We don't have to be a servant to sin any longer. We become a servant of God. And living soberly, that's just having a temperance, a balance in our life. We don't take extremes, especially in patterns of sin. God wants us to deny that and to live a balanced life in his word. And we're going to look at some of, more of the verses that develop this. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The very people who deny God, they're taking his truth, the beauty of his word, and they're holding that up and making it unrighteous. They're taking the truth of the Bible and making it into a lie. And that's of the devil. All lies are of the devil. And yet so many people, they're under that demonic influence. They believe the ways of the world are correct and they're willing to trample underfoot the blood of God, which has given us this covenant of grace. Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and temperance. Against such there is no law. When we deny worldly lusts, God doesn't want us to have a vacuum, like there's nothing to take the place when we successfully fight the sin in our life. God is saying, let the fruit of the Spirit come in. And when we do that, that actually becomes a means to further fight the sin in our life. When we have the love and joy of peace of God, we have a settled countenance. One of the things here, faith, the more we increase our faith, the less we're likely to succumb to sin, because it no longer has that desirous hold over us. Colossians 3.8 says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So as we're purging out the sin in our life, which God wants us to do, as His grace is teaching us how to live a more godly life, these are specific line items, so to speak, on your, on your budget that we should remove. Things like anger, wrath, and malice. That's holding that bad attitude against somebody. Blasphemy. It's so easy to blaspheme the Lord. And many times we don't even know it. 
One of the things that really bugs me is when people say, OMG, like in a text. To me, I know that that's like stretching it a little bit, but that's almost, to me, like taking the name of the Lord in vain. Why would you say that? Or like, oh my gosh, when my children were little, I didn't allow them to say that in the house. I don't want to hear that because it's too close to saying the real blasphemy. Just don't even go there. Why tread the line and be so close? 1 Timothy 3.16 says, But without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The gospel message is a wonderful message. But God is saying here, it's without controversy. It's such a great story to tell that nobody can get, have a controversy over it. If we raise any kind of political issue, and if you've got five Democrats and five Republicans, you have a big controversy. <laughs> but God is saying, my gospel is without controversy. It's so clean and pure and perfect. Once you understand it, you have no controversy. And it says, God was made manifest in the flesh. Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago. Jesus has always existed, but he made himself in the form of human flesh. He became a baby, born of Mary, 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life because he's God, he cannot sin. And he was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, who only, only Jesus can take away our sins. And it says he was seen of angels. He was seen of angels in heaven. He was seen of angels before his birth. For example, when Abram and Sarah were in the desert and Jesus and the two angels came and visited them and said, this time, about, this time next year, Sarah, you're going to have a, a baby. And she kind of laughed. She didn't have faith at that point. But obviously she got faith because she had a baby a year later. And then remember those two angels? They went on to Sodom and Gomorrah. And called down the fire from heaven and destroyed those cities. First Timothy 2.8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So the progression that we walk through as a Christian is that people will pray everywhere. And you can pray anytime, and literally you can pray anywhere. You can pray in your bedroom, you can pray driving in a car. You, literally, you can pray anywhere, and that's communicating with God. And God is saying here, I will, therefore. This is God's will for you, to talk to him, to pray everywhere and lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Sometimes we pray sometimes with a, a bad attitude about people, and it's a lingering anger that turns into a wrath, and that many times develops into bitterness. We shouldn't pray that way. God is saying, don't pray that way. Most importantly, don't pray with doubt because he answers through faith. And faith is the opposite of doubt. God doesn't want us to pray with doubts. If, Lord, if you, if you will do this, no, be specific in your prayer and ask God specifically for something that you would like to see him work in your life. And when he answers those prayers, that's how your faith grows. My son, I, I think I mentioned this to you maybe in the past. He used to keep, I mean, maybe he still does in China, but he used to keep a prayer journal or maybe send me an email or something or tell me verbally, hey, Dad, do you know this month God answered out of 70 prayers? When God answered the prayers, he would cross it off. And, but he had lists, like a thousand prayers. Missionaries send him a prayer request. He writes it down. He prays over it. He kept a comp compilation of that. He had one year... I don't know, well over a thousand answers to prayers. That was an encouragement to me. And that should be an encouragement to all of us in this room. God is a prayer answering God. And test yourself. Take a journal, write down the prayer request you've got from God, and see when he answers them. And many times he answers them in his time, which is not our time. You know, sometimes we get frustrated or, you know, why is this, not, why is this taking so long? But remember, God's time is not our time. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, 
For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. How many times when we engage in a conversation, we really don't even let the other person finish and we jump in right away with our thoughts. And that's so common. This is very good advice. This is practical advice that we can use just even in business situations. And he says here, let every man be swift to hear. Hear the person out, what they're telling you. Because this is near and dear to their heart, or they will not be sharing it with you. And if you jump into the middle of the conversation, perhaps you miss the most important part that they wanted to share. So be swift to hear and slow to speak. So Jude 1.18 says, How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. We know from God's word that people will mock us if we share the gospel. Mocking is somebody who disrespects God's word. They're really not mocking us so much as they're many times under conviction of the word. And they push God away. And through that process, because we're Christians, when they push away God's word or disrespect it or make fun of it or even do even blasphemy to it, in our ears and eyes and our viewing that, that's mockery. But it's not up to us to judge. God says, revenge is mine, I will recompense. So our job is just to share the gospel message. And most importantly, for those people who mock, is pray for them. Because God's word tells us, don't cast your pearl before swine, lest they turn again and rend you. And the pearl is the word of God. The swine is the unbeliever. You know those swine with those, with those little snorts and those little tusks? They can rip your legs up real quick. The best thing to do if somebody rejects the word of God when you witness to them is pray for them. That God will soften their heart and heart so that his word can come in. Let's look at the second point. The manifestation of God's grace. The manifestation of God's grace is when God became a human being 2,000 years ago. And if you look at the gospel and the Bible in its to- from a panoramic point of view, from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and then the New Testament all the way through Revelation, God is consistent in there. Looking toward the cross and looking back at the cross. God was manifested. Titus 2.13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus is a book in the New Testament. At this point, Jesus had already been born. He had lived his perfect life. He had gone to the cross as a sacrificial lamb. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. He walked on the earth for 40 more days. And then... He was ascended into heaven, and on Pentecost, 50 days from the Passover, he sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. But we can look at the Bible. If you look at Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to Satan after Adam and Eve had already sinned. This is chapter 3 of the Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis. And God is already saying that Jesus is coming. He says, I will, and I will put enmity, that's a war, fighting, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, the lost, the evil, and her seed, Jesus. It shall bruise your head, and you will bruise Jesus' heel. So when Jesus went to the cross, that's a picture of Satan bruising Jesus' heel. But at the same time, when God rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, he took the keys of death and hell. And that's when Jesus bruised Satan's head. If you're having a fight, I think I would rather have a bruised heel than a bruised head. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So this is in the Old Testament. And this is a foretelling of Jesus' coming. Because Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ was born. Now, Jesse was the father of King David. King David ruled a thousand years before Isaiah wrote this. So Jesse has already passed from the scene. King David, Solomon, they have already passed from the scene. Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. And Mary was from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is 100% God. He's the only begotten Son of God. And the Holy Spirit moved over the Virgin Mary, and she conceived. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's the only begotten Son of God, and he's the Son of Mary through the human bloodline going to Jesse, who was from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you look at this verse, it says... The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. If we want more wisdom and more understanding, we need to be in the Bible. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy, the Bible, the holy scriptures is understanding. Here this verse says the spirit of knowledge and it says, of the fear of the Lord. You know what I learned this week from the Bible? In one of the verses, it says, the fear of the Lord is God's treasure. Isn't that beautiful? Do you want God's treasure? Fear God. If God willing, next week I want to give some, I want my message to be on the fear of the Lord. This was such an exciting verse. I never read that. I've read it before, but it never hit me. The fear of the Lord is God's treasure. Wow. Do we fear God? What does it mean to fear? I'm not afraid of him. You know, John Piper, he's a very famous preacher in America. He said, when you realize there's nothing else that matters, run as hard as you can to God. Because he's the only thing that matters. Amen. That's a beautiful picture. Are you running as hard as you can because you fear God so much that you realize nothing else matters in life? And as you approach God with this mindset, his treasures are revealed to you. The treasures of God. And it starts with learning his word. The fear of the Lord is the, is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so back to the message here. Micah, but thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, thou shalt be little among the thousands of Judah. Yet out of thee shall come forth me unto me, that is the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Bethlehem of Ephratah was the specific Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of, of um, Jerusalem, if you look on the map. Now, there were many Bethlehems. So the Bible is specific and says this is the Bethlehem Ephratah. Just like we have Springfields, I looked on Google, there's 23 states that have a Springfield, like a Springfield, Virginia. And in Wisconsin, they have two Springfields. So in the U.S., there's 24 cities or towns, whatever, that are called Springfield. So this, again, shows how specific the Bible is. It wasn't any Bethlehem. It was Bethlehem of Ephratah, where Christ would be born. And this verse also says, whose goings forth, Jesus has always been, from old, from everlasting. Some people want to say God was born and started when he was a baby. That's wrong. This says from everlasting. Everlasting means it has no beginning. It's eternity. Jesus is God. He has no beginning. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So this is another one of the many miracles 
Jesus was born of a virgin. Mark 16, 19 says, So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. So we're seeing the progression of this Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope. We see in Genesis where God had said he would be coming. And then we had other verses that dealt specifically with some aspects of his coming. And now Jesus has send, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Acts 1.11 says, these are the angels who are now talking to the people who all watched Jesus go up into heaven. Acts 1.11 says, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? I think I would have been gazing too, right? We just saw Jesus lifted up into the clouds. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming again. You played that song probably a thousand times, right, Miss Alice? Jesus is coming again. And he's going to come in his power in like manner. That was power that took him up into heaven. And it's going to be with power when he comes back. We have also more information on how Jesus will come back and when he's coming back. Not the specific day nor the hour. Not even Jesus knows that, only the, son, only the Father. But we know how he will be coming back. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. This verse is teaching us really two important things. One is wait for the Son of Man. Many people say, oh, Jesus isn't coming. It's been 2,000 years. Why hasn't he come already? This verse says wait. How many times when your kids... They want something. It's like, wait. You're like, you're making the cookies, the chocolate chip cookies. When are the cookies ready? Just wait. They're not ready. Five more minutes, they'll be ready. Well, kind of, we're kind of like that too. It's like, Jesus, when are you going to come? God's word says, just wait. Have a little patience. I'm coming. The most important part of this verse says, he delivered us from the wrath to come. The wrath has not yet come. The wrath will come. And that's what this verse is saying. They deal with this concept called the rapture. And if you have a hundred theologians in the room, you're going to get many varied opinions on when does the rapture happen. There's the pre-trib rapture. There's the seven-year tribulation period where they say all of the saints will be taken before the tribulation starts. And then there's the mid-trib halfway through, three and a half years into the tribulation period where the rapture will happen. And then you have the post-trip. And then you've got a very small group that say, it's already happened. Our church, we follow the pre-trip. My son, who studied this a whole lot more than me, he thinks it's post-trip. We're not going to lose fellowship over one of these doctrinal points, but it's very interesting because the verse itself is what we need to focus on. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. The graves are going to open up. All of the saints that you've known, your mom, your grandmom, your uncles, your aunts, even your great-great-great-grandma who you never met, if she was a Christian, she's going to come out of the grave first. That's going to be a time of rejoicing. And it says, Then we, who are alive here on the earth, Walking around, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Remember when the angel said, in like manner he will come back? He was lifted up into the clouds. He's going to come back in the clouds, and we're going to go up to meet him in the clouds. Isn't that an awesome thought? Maybe some of you have a fear of flying, but you don't have to worry about it because... God's going to take away your fear of heights and everything. You're going to have a glorified body at that instant. You will no longer be able to sin. You will no longer be sick. It's going to be awesome. And it says, look at so shall we ever be with the Lord. God will never leave us or forsake us on this earth. But many times we think we're walking alone, right? Because the burdens get heavy. But at that point, we know 
Jesus will never leave us. And then I didn't put it on this verse, but the next verse in this chapter says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Many times we read letters from maybe our mom or, or maybe I have one in my Bible. It's a little note that my son gave to me when he was like four years old just learning how to print. And it became pre- it's precious to me. And someday, I guess when I retire the Bible, I'll take that and I'll put it on a plaque on the wall. How many times do we have letters in our life that become precious? Well, God's Bible is his letter, his love letter to us. And it's precious in our, the sight of the Christians. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The next verse. Now it's when Jesus comes back. Revelation 19.11 talks about this. The scene here in the Bible is the battle of Armageddon. There's 200 million soldiers who are gathered together to make war against Christ. And it says he speaks a word. And they're all killed. And it says the blood is 200 miles long, as high as a horse's bridle. And it says the birds, God calls all the birds in the firmament to fly. And it takes them seven months to eat the dead flesh. Can you imagine that? 200 million soldiers and they think they can fight Christ? And he speaks a word. Look at it. In the beginning, God created by speaking the universe into existence. God's word is powerful. Look at Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him, that's Jesus, was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Nobody can battle against God and win. It's impossible. Revelation 19, 15, and 16 says, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. What is the sword of God? It's his word. The sword of the Lord is the word, the Bible. That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Immediately after the battle of Armageddon, Jesus starts his 1,000-year reign on the earth. He takes Satan and ties him up in in the pits of hell. And he takes the beast and the false prophet and casts them into the lake of fire. They're the first people with their bodies that go into the lake of fire. Because now all souls that don't believe Jesus who have died, they're in hell. Hell is different than the lake of fire. After the great white throne, after the thousand years, after Satan is released for a season, after his final rebellion, after God speaks a word... Then all of those souls are united with their dead bodies. They stand before the great white throne. And then death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And at that point, the beast and the false prophet have already been in the lake of fire for over a thousand years. They were not consumed. They're still there. They're there for for eternity at that point. And let's continue with this. He shall rule with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath. Now, why would God rule with a rod of iron? During that thousand years, billions of people are going to be born. And they are still under Adam's curse. So they still have a lost, rebellious sin nature. And when Satan is loosed after that thousand years, most people follow Satan. And they've been ruled by God for a thousand years in this perfect society. It says where the lamb will sit down with the lion and children will play with viper snakes and not get bit. They're living in a perfect, there's going to be no water shortages. There's going to be no disease as we know it, no cancer. And yet they rebel against God. That's why he rules with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And on his vesture and on his thigh, A name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, let's go to Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us, this is Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is why Jesus gave himself for us. This is why Jesus went to the cross to die. To redeem us 
from all iniquity, sins, transgressions, and to purify unto himself a strange, a peculiar, a different people. This is not our world. This is not our home. So our home is in heaven. And that makes us, from the world's point of view, peculiar. So Jesus calls us a peculiar people. But that's nothing to be ashamed of. Because at the judgment day, we're going to be very happy that we were peculiar people. John 1.14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is writing about Jesus, God, being in the flesh. And all of the apostles that, that he chose, that he called, they beheld his glory. There were up to 500 people who saw Jesus at one time after he was resurrected from the dead. Literally thousands saw him after he was resurrected from the dead. And he's full of grace and truth. John 3.16, all of us are very familiar with this verse. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not go to hell, but goes to heaven. If you believe through faith. And that's why God so loved us that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross. Romans 1, 3, and 4 says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So this verse follows up on the one we just talked about, where Jesus comes through the lineage of David, and he's declared to be the Son of God with power, all power. Romans 6, 12, and 13 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we don't no longer have to let sin reign, have rule over our mortal bodies, because we no longer need to be a servant of sin. Because Jesus now is our king. And we should let his Holy Spirit reign over our actions. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more shall the blood of Christ? And this is through the offering that Christ gave. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb. And it will purge your conscience from dead works. Purge means you take out the bad things. And that's what we need to do in our Christian life. We always constantly need to be fighting sin and our, our Adam nature. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, and from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's no gold nor silver that will allow us to buy eternal life in heaven. Our vain conversation, conversation being our lifestyles, the way we live our life, that's a tradition of man. Traditions of men will never get us to heaven. And it says here, it's the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without spot. That's how we get to heaven. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And do you have faith in him as your redeemer? 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are a chosen generation. God chose you to be a Christian. We didn't on our own Go and want to be saved. Because this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. The lost soul does not want to come to the light. It wants to scurry away and get further into the darkness. But God chose us out of darkness, and he gave us redemption. And it says that you should show forth the praises of him 
who called you out of this darkness and into his light. God is light, and in him is no darkness. And we should praise him for our salvation. And then the final point, the authority of God's grace. Titus 2.15 says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. God wants us to share the gospel message. And even if it comes back as a little bit of ridicule and, and people are despising us, God says, don't let them despise you. You are a son of God. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a joint heir with God. Those are all promises that God has given us, and we should never be brought down by somebody being negative to our good work of sharing the gospel. Isaiah 51.6 says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. This earth is going to vanish away like smoke. And the earth shall wax old like a garment. What do we do with old garments? We get rid of them. What's God going to do with this old earth? He's going to get rid of it. And they that dwell in therein shall die in like manner. The old garments, God's going to put away. And if you don't have a new garment of, through the blood of Christ, then your old garment is going to end up in the lake of fire because that's the trash heap of, of eternity. But if you have the new garment of faith in Christ, you will spend eternity with God in heaven. And it says, But my salvation shall be forever. And my righteousness shall not be abolished. It will never end. It will never go away. Those are all promises of God. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Why can Jesus say these things? He has all power. The only power that any of us have in our life is what God has delegated to us. What God has allowed us to have through his grace and mercy. And many times... We have the ability to share the gospel, and that's through God's grace. It's He's giving His power many times in the form of gifts, like the gift of preaching, the gift of sharing, the gift of mercy, the gift of, of giving. God has many, many gifts. And it, when we're saved, we all have at least one gift to share. You have, Miss Alice, you have the gift of music. And you, you also have the gift of longevity. Okay, so Matthew... 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That means the end of the world and the end of the age, until Jesus comes back. And do you notice he says, go ye therefore and teach? When we bring somebody into the kingdom by winning a soul for Christ, by sharing in God. We, our job is, to the extent we can, to disciple that person. Teaching, remember the first verse. God is giving us the power to learn his word. His, through his grace, he teaches us his word. And now he gives us the grace to teach his word and pass it on. John 1.3 says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So God has all the authority because he made all things. And we cannot question that authority. He made us. Can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me the way you made me? We can't. We can't question God. Right. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name but Jesus. There's Buddha, Muhammad, no other name. Only Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man goes unto the Father but by me. There's none other name under heaven. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We come boldly. Little children, they, they're bold with their parents. They might have just got disciplined for stealing a cookie. And five minutes later, they'll be bold and say, Hey, Mom, I know I got a spank for that cookie, but can I have a cookie? <laughs> you know? And God wants us to be like little children. Come boldly through his throne of grace. What is your need in your life today? Be it spiritual, physical, financial, emotional. Bring it to God. He said he's telling us to be bold. Let's read that again. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace 
that we obtain mercy. Even when we're sinners, God is merciful. God is great. He's rich in mercy. And he says, that, and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then the final verse here, 2 Peter 1, 3 says, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Everything in life comes from God. Everything that has life comes from God. All of those trees where the leaves are just bursting out, that's from God. Everything that's of death is from our sin nature. God doesn't give death. Death, the wages of sin is death. The reason we're dying is because we're sinners. But all things that pertain unto life and godliness are from Jesus. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And look at it says, through the knowledge of him that has called us. How do people get saved? By hearing the word. And how do they hear the word? A preacher has to go out and everybody in this room is a preacher. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for all the souls that are here today that were able to hear this, this message. And Lord, it is your day. Uh, we want to give you our time and our resources. And Lord, again, we ask this week that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel with somebody who is needy, who is needy of salvation or maybe needing some spiritual guidance, some emotional uplift that we can exhort. And Lord, we honor your throne. You are the King of Kings. Lord, thank you for being able to worship you by looking at your verses. And Lord, that verse that you shared, that you gave me light on, that the fear of the Lord, it's your treasure, Lord, that we would, all of us in this room, even start to learn and seek and find and enjoy your treasures from your holy word. We love you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit be with us. Amen.